0: Welcome to Beyond the Roadmap, product talk with AWH, a podcast for product people, by product people. Join us as experts share their experiences and expertise to help you build great products.
1: Hi, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Beyond the Roadmap, a podcast about building successful software products. I'm Ryan Frederick from AWH. And today I've got Dan Belkowski with me from Product Tranquility. Dan, before we jump into the, the, the Q&A and, and we've mapped out, you know, a whole list of things to, to talk about here, and to give people the background, what do you do? What are you about? Why are we talking about? And, and you know, I'll, I'll take a look behind the curtain here for just a second. We're going to talk about pricing. What do you do at Product Tranquility and why do you care about pricing?
0: Well, first of all, Ryan, thank you for having me on the show. I'm really honored to be here and hopefully the conversation is is valuable for your listeners. My bio is probably I enjoy the least part of uh, what I enjoy about talking about the topic. Uh, But, you know, to give the the listeners a sense of where I'm coming from, my uh, background is been in the technology space. My entire career Uh, went from developing products as on the engineering side through engineering management. Uh, and then spent the last 15 years in in product management, and now uh, for the last three years, I've been running Product Tranquility, where all we do is help high volume B two B SaaS CEOs define pricing and packaging for new products. And that really out of that transition from building products, I, I found building products really fascinating from the engineering side, but I was always a little bit more drawn to. Okay, this is great that we're building these features, but how does this really translate into value for our customers? And then how does that turn into dollars and cents? Like, no one really explained that at engineering schools. Like, why is anybody giving us money to do this? Why don't they just do it themselves? Uh, you know, I took Econ 101, but somehow, like, I missed the connection in those lessons. And so that really, as I got into the world of product management and really understanding, okay, how do we figure out what is going to create the most value for product, right? So I got really enamored with the value creation side. It's still that uh, value capture side that is the pricing and packaging aspect, the monetization aspect I spent all my time on now was still a bit elusive. And I really got my first taste of that. When I went and got my MBA at business school, I was lucky. I didn't realize at the time, but went to one of the few programs that actually had pricing courses and learned a lot of the foundational blocking and tackling there. There's definitely no one domain of pricing, depending on what industry or uh, pricing monetization model you're under, Uh, different concepts can be more or less applicable, uh, very different if you're running a, for example, two-sided marketplace business versus an e-commerce business like Amazon versus dynamic auction businesses like Google or Facebook for their ad inventory uh, versus a B2B SaaS business. So many different uh, techniques, uh, those type of things apply. And I was lucky in my MBA internship to work for a very successful Silicon Valley company and problem on the CEO's desk when I showed up was they sold apps through several major go-to-market partners. And one of those major go-to-market partners demanded they they were trying to position themselves, that go-to-market partner, as the low-cost player in the market, demanded all their partners have a freemium version of their offering. And so the you know, CEO's like, we have to create a freemium version of our app for this go-to-market partner. You know, Should we do that for all of our partners? And so gave the project to me. And so that was kind of my first step into the world of, of pricing and TLDR. We might talk about it later, but generally, I think freemium is a terrible idea. And I have a whole bunch of time that I've spent uh, researching why that is, but uh, generally gave them that recommendation and kind of sent me on my way to then get involved in a lot of other pricing and packaging work along the way. So that's uh, the, I'll, I'll cap my story there. If you have any other questions, I'm happy to answer
1: well, and I didn't even know this and, and we were going to talk about freemium, but I didn't realize that we were, we were equal opportunity freemium dislikers, um, before, before we started this conversation, because I'm also not a freemium fan, um, because it, and I want to get your, 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 your thoughts around it. Freemium, in my experience, sets a company up for uh, lots of false positives around the product's value. A proposition and a commercialization potential. Because if you get customers on your freemium product, that means the product has to be good enough, valuable enough, interesting, interesting enough for users to want to use it, but leave some room for some you know, premium features for you to charge for. The challenge there that most companies have not unlocked is how do you leave enough room between freemium value and premium value proposition that you can convert enough users to make it commercially viable. I mean, I'm, I've been an Evernote subscriber for a long time. Evernote is still not really considered that much of a successful company and product because they only convert like 1% of their users to pay users, and so it's hard to really build a long-term sustainable business around freemium, in my experience. What say you?
0: Oh man, I if I could if I was in the same room as you, I'd give you a hug right now because it's I feel so lonely sometimes uh, because in a public forum you, you rarely hear anyone talking about freemium as a bad idea. It's funny the amount of private equity. You know, operators, investors, venture capitalists who in private conversation with me will be like, Hey, Dan, you know, I've never really seen freemium work either. Like, like, like it's dirty. Like, I don't want, like, I'm not going to say it too loud, even though there's no one else in the room, because like, lest, you know, I get, uh, lambasted on social media for, for my, uh, hypocrisy or my, um, <laughs> uh, going against the, the religion of freemium. Um, but you know, I think Evernote is a perfect example they were you know back when i was this is uh, 2011 when i was doing this freemium research they were held up as this darling of the look how good freemium can be like evernote is this wildly successful company they had the famous evernote smile curve of people after 3 years would eventually start paying for the product as I say, a lot of startups can run out of cash in those three years while they're waiting for freemium to pay off. So I, right. I guess uh, even there is dangerous advice. Right. It could be, what's that called? No, we- <laughs> the trough of
1: despair, right? Yeah. You may, yeah. You, may not, you, may, you may not make it out of the trough of despair for, the, for it to turn into a smile, right?
0: Yeah. And, and, and I think it, it might be helpful for us to set some definition unless we get too far down this and, and just have lost our, our listeners bit. So I do want to make a distinction between freemium and free trial. And I think that distinction is important because I do readily advocate free trials. Um, Both of them are predicated on this term economists will throw around of Software as an experience good, which is my perception of the value of the product changes as I use it. So many hardworking CMOS and go-to-market teams out there producing a lot of good website content, copywriting, blog posts, white papers, going putting together booths and keynotes at trade shows, all that stuff very helpful. Nothing is quite as valuable to an end user as actually getting your hands on the product, seeing it produce value with your own data. There's a certain part of the human psyche that doesn't really light up until they have that aha moment. You see your infrastructure, you see your data inside the product. Like, oh, now I understand, right? You could read, you know, 20 white papers and not get to that level of realization. So there is definitely value there, and I'm not going to discount that. I think the trick, the problem is, um, there's, there's a bunch of bad arguments around freemium. So I think one is, you know, you need a massive market to make freemium work. The 1%, I love that you quoted the 1% number because not many people realize like best in class freemium converts about one to 3%, which means you really need a total addressable market of millions of customers in order to make it financially viable. Um, the other thing is that it tends to, as you mentioned, understanding what that gap is between the free and the paid is incredibly difficult. It's it's difficult enough to figure out what the gap in value is between if you have like a good, better, best plan, we might talk about offer bundles, configurations, uh, tiers of software packages later, but it makes a big difference how much value you give away because all the value you give away that, that creates another perception of value is we don't value what we don't, what we get for free. And so if you're giving too much away, then all of a sudden I don't, I don't really value that. Also, it really depends upon who that customer is. I've worked with B2B SaaS companies before where they have a freemium offering and you get bad feedback from the market from those customers. Cause those, again, let's also make a definition, uh, distinction in definitions here, lest we get too uh, ahead of ourselves. People who use the freemium offering who don't pay you, I would call users. People who pay you, I call customers. So the freemium users often don't look like you're paying customers. Like the B2B SaaS companies I've worked for where they will have, you know, a B2B offering, a paid offering, and then you go look at the freemium people and they are all like families using it for home use. You know, it's not like there's a migration path where all of a sudden these families are going to start businesses and start paying for your offering. It's a, it's a, it's a different group of folks. And this, you know, so now, but also that muddies the feedback channel to product management, to support, to customer success, where they're hearing feedback from these, these folks of, Hey, if you just added this, this would make the product better. And that comes in this deluge into the product management organization. You know, in, in real time, it's hard. it Could be hard to decouple it and really listen for the signal and the noise. Be like, okay, oh, this this is not actually coming from the persona that I care about, but it's it's getting, you know, in the in my inbox in a never an extreme of feedback. So it could it could be misleading from that perspective. It can also add this internal momentum tax on every decision the R and D team has to make. An R and D team broadly between product and engineering and design, where. I don't know any CEO that thinks their product team or engineering team is shif- shipping features fast enough. And now you've put a tax on every decision of every feature we build of like, does this go on the pay side or the free side? Like, and then, you know, how many executive meetings do we need to have on every single feature? So it just creates a whole bunch of issues. Um, and I think, you know, the Evernote, let me go make one more point on the Evernote thing, because a lot of this comes down to as well. What is the competitive space that you're in? Uh, Evernote was in a very tight spot. They competed against OneNote, Microsoft. Right. The largest software company in the world that gave OneNote away for free, bundled with the rest of the Microsoft Office suite. So if you're Evernote, you had like really no choice. Like how else are you going to p- convince people to pay off the bat? You're competing against Microsoft with an enormously dominant footprint. And so I think people sort of look at Evernote like, well, they did it. It's like, well, they, they sort of had to. So I, there are there are times where these things could work, but I, I, my default answer is it said go to a free trial Freemium tends to not work for a whole bunch of reasons, uh, and just leave that alone. Uh, I'll stop there because I, I could rant for the rest of our episode. I don't think it, <laughs> we want to do that.
1: It's okay, and it's all good because you know I think freemium by many entrepreneurs by by many product teams g- gets uh, overvalued uh, because it, it's also a little bit of an elixir because it feels like if we just launch the product and we launch with uh, with freemium. And we start acquiring users that it feels like we're getting some traction, right? And I think to your point of the difference between users of freemium and customers who are paying, that traction around freemium users and activity, feedback, right, as you said, can all be these false positives that make it feel like something's happening and, you, and you're, you're like getting a hold of something, and and then six months goes by, nine months goes by, a year goes by, and not much has changed. And then you're like, oh man, we read this all wrong. Th- those freemium users weren't actually gonna convert. They were never gonna become what we thought they were gonna become, i.e., the product's never gonna become what we thought it could become, etc. And I just think that it becomes a very slippery slope when freemium, because I think freemium's gotten converted to a little bit too much from a pricing approach. To a business model, and that I think is dangerous territory to to confuse the two.
0: Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. And I, I think it, it. We may talk about this a little bit, but you know, one of these these traps I think you're painting is. One the technical teams may have an aversion to doing marketing. Marketing might be a dirty word if you're a purely engineering-driven uh, small team. And so it was like, hey, if we have freemium, we don't have to do marketing. The product will sell, oh, sell itself or advertise itself, generate awareness for itself, right? We don't have to do these marketing things that are somewhat distasteful. Uh, so that could be that could be a trap. But I think the one thing we, you know, I, I talk about and caution early stage companies is. You want to make sure you're getting validated market feedback. And so if you think about the product is delivering value, value is the pleasure. The price is the pain. And so you want to force the market to go through that balance of I want to whip out my credit card. There's some pain involved in there. Is it, is, am I crossing enough of a hurdle in the value I'm delivering in order to make that? And you just don't have that in freemium. So you'll never know if you're actually delivering value or if people are just sort of doing you a favor because they had a spare five minutes to go create an account or play around in your software. And so I think that validated feedback aspect, we just you know we want to make sure like we have that as early in the process as possible. We don't get fooled by uh, we just have a bunch of users. And at some point we're going to turn the taps on of monetization, and then everything's going to flow. Hope is not a strategy. I do not recommend that for anyone.
1: Right. Yeah. The, the magic. Hey, we're just going to flip a switch now and we're going to start charging the, the users who've not been paying. We're going to start charging them and somehow, you know, that's, that's inexplicably going to work. So you started to allude to, to free trials though and the, the benefits of those. Let's continue down that path since we, 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 you know, we sort of segued into it. What are the advantages of free trials and how, how can someone set up free trials in a way that, that makes sense for their product? And are there some rules of the road around free trials that work better than others?
0: Yeah. So, so free trials, again, the distinction is there's a, there's a ticking fuse in a free trial. There's some start point that says a trial has started and there's some end point. And that end point is usually defined by time. And most of the studies, most of the data I've seen, um, kind of your optimal time, if you're going to do it in terms of days, would be 14 to 30 days. It tends to be sort of a, a peak there. Uh, it tends to drop off in uh, effectiveness outside of that range. But generally within 14 to 30 days uh, is fairly the same amount of effectiveness. So it uh, really depends upon... Your other business objectives, your management decision, how how fast you want your, your sales uh, motion to move, um, those can be different factors help you decide in there. Or there could be some amount of usage factor. So some amount of let's say sends or or, or cap uh, right of of usage of I could use of the product before it says, hey, you've used it enough. Now it's time to make a decision, and you know that is really the benefit of the trial versus the freemium. Because I think that with freemium, um, again, you have this mirage this illusion right I, I all due respect to every uh, go-to-market team that is out there it's really hard to get new customers and if they're in a freemium model you don't have a clear transition of this person is an active lead for sales to try to close and not and so there's always this temptation to if we just do a little bit more if we just add a little bit more value if we just give them this little nudge then we can push them over the edge and you across this giant pool whereas within a you know 14 to 30 day trial you're like all right they started on day one. We've got a 14-day drip campaign of, of emails and education, and we've got salespeople reaching out. And at the end of day 14, you know, there's either communication says, hey, we're actively evaluating, we just need a few more days. Can you give us an extension on the trial? Which is totally fine. But that at that point, you know, sales involved, they're still you know, trying to figure out you know, what is actually going to move this deal forward, or it's, hey, actually, this doesn't look like it's for us great. No more money, no more time investment spent. Um, so really you want to protect that customer acquisition cost. you know, all the sales marketing investments going into who is actively going to be purchasing this product, who is a customer and who isn't. Um, so that's kind of the, the overall, you know, free trial generally, you know, 14 to 30 day trial is, is the standard.
1: One of the things I see often is, especially with, um, new products and and whether it's early stage company or it's it's a new product from an existing company is products are almost always underpriced to begin with it is is that a factor of just immaturity uh, th- that the team behind the product d- just doesn't know enough yet to price it high enough and adequately is it a little bit of fear that they're afraid to price it where they actually know that it should be priced and where the where where the value proposition is is it that they've convoluted the pricing and 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 not positioned it properly so people are coming in and and doing the the good version when they they forecasted more people were going to be doing you know the better version of the best version when when someone's rolling out a new product how do they think about getting the pricing mostly right at the beginning and not underpricing?
0: Man, I love this question. There's so many threads that this opens. Let me start first with some basic human psychology. We all have a, let's say, strained relationship to money. Whether you grew up poor, whether you grew up rich, doesn't matter. Uh, money has this weird effect on the uh, human mind. Economists have, and psychologists have Shown in the lab all of the crazy irrational behaviors we undergo uh marketers take advantage of this every day at the at the grocery store or the department store uh and so the the idea that we would take a bunch of irrational humans. Who have a strained relationship to money? We put them inside of a company, and all of a sudden, they would become this perfect rational homo economicus. Uh, is somewhat of a of a joke on humanity. It's an absurdity. Uh, so right. you know, we all come with our, our pre existing biases, uh, and one of those biases that rears its head, I think, in the example that you laid out, is it's really difficult to know your own worth. Uh, you can think of next last time you went through a salary negotiation, maybe how powerless you felt. Uh, and you know, though this big company, right, they've got all the power on their side and maybe I want some more money or want a bump in title or whatever it might be more vacation days, whatever it might be for you. It doesn't really matter. But at the same time, the company like, look, they, they, Went through a hundred candidates to find you and they're giving you the offer. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's very similar where we see all of the flaws. We know all of the plans we have for this thing that is as yet undeveloped in all of the dreams and hopes that it could be. And so we look at our product in its current format and we're just, we're ashamed. We're like, oh, like, I hope they don't notice, right? In the meantime, on the other end of the, spectrum you've got this customer who is like thank god somebody saw finally solved this problem you know how big of a pain this has been i don't care that it doesn't have you know the Eleventh and twelfth and fiftieth integration that you're planning on building next year, like, this is going to make my life so much better today. But because we're so close to it, we don't really see that. And so I think part of what you're pointing to is just this general human bias and and problem. And and you know, not to say well, go hire a consultant, you know, to help you with pricing, but a third party observer can help you get that uh, that benefit, right? And you know, anchoring is a big thing. Like I've worked with clients where they were developing a new product, product manager or VP of product, CPO, whoever it was. At some point, six months out from product release, had to create an executive slide that had a price point on it. And they hadn't had time to go do the research. They just you know, were in the middle of development of this product and still trying to figure out what it was going to be. So they threw a number on there without any research. And then can create problems for someone who's actually going and doing the market research later, talking to end users who haven't been involved in the process, who going out and, you know, whatever market research tool you want to use, there are many we could, we could discuss on how to actually un- uncover uh, willingness to pay, etc. for uh, products. And come back with a number that is that is actually much higher than what people the executive team has been staring at for a slide for the last you know three months, right? Because this executive that's that number on the slide has now become real, right? And so they're like, wait, wait, you know, customers must be mistaken, they must not be understanding how undeveloped this product is, right? So so I see these dynamics play out, you know, all the time. Um, you know, really uh the other part of your question is, you know, I, I really see it was funny. I was talking to uh, another uh, gentleman yesterday, and we were talking about putting together a, a course for early stage uh, companies and uh, what they need to know about pricing. And he's like, "Yeah, I get asked all the time of you know how do I maximize my price you know for my product." I do think at a certain stage of the company that is a that is the wrong question to ask. Um, I think about it as like, can you charge enough? You think of it like you're at your favorite arcade. Maybe I'm I'm dating myself. I don't know if I don't know if kids go to arcade and put quarters in the machines anymore, but I used to do that when I was a kid. Right? You're like, "All right, how many how many quarters do I have? How long can I keep playing?" Um, right? And so I want to be able to charge enough that I can keep playing the game until I get a certain level of traction. And so think of it more that way. And so one of the uh, other areas that we your question brings up is this idea of pricing orientations. So there's generally thought of as three pricing orientations, which is uh, they're called the three C's of pricing because marketers, we love our four P's and uh, five C's and all, all that uh, fun stuff. So usually think about cost-based pricing, competition-based pricing and customer value-based pricing often referred to as just value-based pricing. But again, if you said that, then it would have to be two C's and a V, which is not quite as marketing catchy. <laughs>
1: But in general, if you start
0: out, not nearly as slick, not nearly as slick. So we start out, right? Understanding cost-based pricing is what does it cost me to serve this product and like can this keep me in business long enough right if <laughs> uh i think a lot of us have been uh in the last uh, 10 years have been at the benefit of uh vc money funding uh cheap food delivery and and taxi rides uh etc where these these companies have managed uh through upside down business models to uh, be able to subsidize the rest of us uh but those, those make for bad unit economics. And so wh- so get your unit economics in order, right? Charge enough that you're able to get some amount of money back on a unit basis, right? You might still be burning money because of fixed cost of development, et cetera, of starting a company can be very expensive. Uh, uh, you know, and acquiring customers can be very expensive, but at least on a unit basis, you're, you're going to be uh, making money and focus on that first long enough to sort of continue the aim these types of decisions evolve and change over time. And so your question, it it begets uh, maybe uh, a whole course worth of, uh, of unwinding people's misperceptions, but I'll stop there and see if you want to dig in any particular place. Well,
1: I think you said something that's fascinating and there, there's the, uh, I think it's called the endowment bias that something that we own, like the truck that's sitting out in my driveway I think is worth more than if I look it up on Kelly Blue Book and it comes and tells me what it's worth right we're probably going to be five to ten ten thousand dollars apart in what I think it's worth and what the market says it's worth. but when it comes to things that we build, things that we create like a software product because we know. Of what the backlog looks like, because we know what the roadmap looks like, because we know, right, that that w- we we ultimately want to do, you know, two hundred and three versions of this product. That sometimes it's like a reverse. It's almost like a. I think you referred to it as flaws, right? It's almost like a flawed bias that we we will underprice because we know the limitations of the product. Versus an endowment price of something that we own, but as creators, sometimes we we undervalue and underprice because we know, you know, we know where where all the bodies are buried, so to speak. That's that's a it's a fascinating psychological conundrum.
0: Absolutely, couldn't have said it better myself.
1: So, is there is there a way to have product teams and companies? not, not get all the way to endowment bias and not overvalue a product, right. You know, an example of, of the, you know, my truck, but to have more confidence early on that they are pricing at an adequate level where they're not underpricing and leaving a bunch of money on the table. They're, they're accelerating, right. They're, you know, the, the, The product outcomes and the results from the product, right, commercially, that they're looking for from a monetization perspective.
0: Yeah, so I think you're bringing up uh, some really good, really good questions, and kind of the the million dollar or maybe billion dollar question of the the episode here, Uh, because there's there's so much that goes into you know, are we at the right spot? And so what I would say is there is no optimal price, as my friend uh, Jim Geisman uh, used to say. He said there are only prices that work and prices that don't. Now, pricing is a process. So like any process, it is inputs and outputs. And really, you know, the function of any process is to fulfill some expected outcome and some expected goal. And so really it starts with, all right, what is this? Where are we headed? And is pricing getting in the way of those goals or not? And what is the, you know, inputs and the You know, how do we, what is the black box that turns those inputs into those outputs? And how do we continually improve, right? there's no sort of like you're, the final, you know, in the world of SaaS, I don't know any product manager, any CEO who says, "Yep, the product is done. No more engineering needed. No more features needed." I mean, at some point, obviously, you know, the lifecycle of a product dies, right? I'm sure all the mainframe uh, systems at some point will will go away. Although a lot of them are still running. Surprisingly, mainframe still multi billion dollar year uh, industry. Surprisingly, uh, even though all the talk of public cloud, uh, but you know, it's we continue changing the value. Therefore, we continue looking at, at the price, right? And so I think this idea of this, this final milestone, this final optimum, we've actually got it nailed is, is first illusion I might dispel. You know, I think again, depending on the stage that you're at, understanding is, do you have a preferred pricing orientation? Again, going back to these three C's, the way I think about these pricing orientations is really, what are the factors that we care about? How is pricing done around here? You know, Are we just looking at our costs? Are we also factoring in this idea of our competition? Are we thinking about the value that we deliver for customers? Thinking through what I think of as kind of my, my core model for pricing, which is have we decided where we are going to play and win? Which customer segments are we going to serve? Because the different customer segments are going to derive different value from our product and have different competitive alternatives available to them and that that trio there of understanding your customer segments, the value you deliver and the competition that 's available really defines what is the differentiated value that you provide to the market and is is your pricing do you feel your pricing is aligned there right so that 's really I think one sense is like okay, given where we play, who we 're trying to serve, the other alternatives that exist and when I say Competition people can, I take competition from very jobs to be done approach. You know, a lot of startups who may be listening to the show. No one's ever heard of the startup down the street. That you're that every day you're worried about, right? A lot of startups are competing against spreadsheets, email, and an intern. Uh, so it could be, it, you know, what is the the alternative that's in the mind of your customer? That you know, and how do you compete compare to that? Not necessarily, uh, you know, who else is in your Gartner Magic Quadrant? Right, your customer might have no no idea of that other uh, competitor. Right, it's on it's on you to really understand that, and then to really try to again with with that sort of overall strategic understanding. How do you then prioritize what aspect of your pricing and packaging you know need to get uh, tweaked, need to get aligned? How do you go through discovery, research, you know, testing, iteration, and finally you know implementation and rollout? So you know, there's there's a lot of stuff I, I've mentioned in there, right? Um, the idea is that you know if we don't start with what we're trying to achieve, again, if you're just you know at early stages of your startup, your your seed stage. Your goal isn't absolute perfect monetization. It isn't, I want to tweak out a couple extra basis points of, of profit percentage, right? That's the job of a Fortune 500 CEO who needs to, you know, meet their, their Wall Street earnings per share number and is like, All right, I need to tweak these numbers quite a bit. You're going to start up. You're very different. You want to deliver value, have those customers make that decision. Hey, and make sure that you're on the right path. You're solving a, a validated market problem. So you're at a very different stage in monetization journey than Fortune 500 companies. I would I would caution many startups I talk to, be cautious the lessons you learn from Fortune 500 companies. Especially uh, talk about customer segments. People get very enamored of like, well, Amazon serves everyone and Google serves everyone. It's like, okay, yeah, but they didn't start that way. So <laughs> it, 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 <laughs> you, it, it, you need amen, to make a choice.
1: <laughs> amen to that. I've, I've talked to so many you know companies over the years that... Um, say well, you know, uh, I, w- I want to be, I want to be like Airbnb or I want to be like Uber, and I, sure, ten years from now, and you know, and fifty million dollars later, that might be possible. Um, today, what w- w- what are you going to accomplish today? What's the next milestone that you've got to get through, right, to 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 even be valuable two weeks from now? Um, so, if pricing is a moment in time, which it sounds like that's what you're sort of saying, it is that. There is no optimal. There is there is no final. Pricing is always a moment in time with a a series of gauges that you're tracking and then dials that you're adjusting. How often is it appropriate to evaluate pricing, potentially change pricing? It, because you can you can over tweak right? and, and you can you can you can upset customers by you know moving pricing around you know uh, too frequently. But if you're not getting the outcomes that you're expecting, then you have no choice but to go in and turn the dials a little bit and 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 adjust. How do you think about the right the right signals to pay attention to, and then the right time to to evaluate and change prices?
0: Yeah, it's a really challenging question because there. I don't think there is a magic number. People would like you're like, oh, you have to do it once a quarter, you know, once a year. I, I think I would generally recommend if you're not doing it once a year, uh, at least that. The big question is it generally makes sense to revisit it you know whenever there's a change in the product or market that necessitates a review and i know that's abstract and that sounds very like well it depends consulting answer but it's really the the case now what i will say is uh, there's a gentleman named stephen forth who runs, who a uh, fantastic mind in pricing and he wrote an article i was reading uh, last week that he talks about uh, you know it takes uh, you know, two points, two data points to, to make a line, three to make a pattern, um, at least uh, one of those time periods to try to make an adjustment. And then you would need another two to three time periods after. So if you're review... If you can think of it in this way, if, if I'm reviewing and understanding how my pricing is behaving on a quarterly basis, it takes me three quarters to notice if there's a problem. It would take me at least one quarter to try to fix the problem and then three to understand if that had an effect. So you can think of... Even if I'm doing something on a quarterly basis, that's almost a two-year cycle in just you know in just keeping you know regular checks on it. So even if you're only doing something once a year, you need to be constantly sort of uh, looking at it. And uh, I don't know if we'll touch on this, but I know uh, in our pre-call we we talked about you know is pricing really talked about enough at by small companies? And you know, unfortunately, it's not. I was uh, talking with a. Early stage. Well, actually, he I mean, was one of these unicorn uh, Silicon Valley founders uh, not too long ago. We we're working on a proposal uh, to do a pricing project. And in the middle of the proposal process, he had a three day executive offsite. You know, the whole planning, you know, is an a early part of the year uh, planning process. And it comes back. We meet the next week and, you know, we're working on. Like, what are we going to do about your pricing and packaging? So I asked him, Hey, you know, what did, what has changed? What did you guys discuss about pricing and packaging at your three day executive offsite? He goes, Well, price, we didn't discuss pricing. It's like, it wasn't even on the menu, uh, which it just blows my mind. You had three days with your entire executive team. It's a very, that's a very expensive meeting. And there's only three ways to grow a SaaS business acquisition, monetization, and retention. And unfortunately, what I see is almost all companies focus only on acquisition. Um, it's you know probably only as we get into what is looking like a recessionary environment does retention become very important because it gets harder and harder to win new business. And so everyone's like, Oh God, maybe we got to make sure we keep people we already have and uh, try to expand those accounts more, which I see a lot. and uh, also goes into the monetization, right? If you don't have a way to expand your, have your customers grow with you as you add more uh, value uh, with the product or they use more value, that could be a problem. But monetization, Just seems to be this blind spot. Um, and so, you know, I think it's for, for whatever reason, you know, I, I, and I have hypotheses around that. You know, I think it's very easy for if you're a manager, you know, you're COO and you get the bill every month from AWS that tells you how much your infrastructure bill was for compute and storage. You're like, Oh my God, we got to fix this. This is a huge amount of money going out the door. But yet you don't, you know, if you were charging ten dollars per seat and you could be charging a hundred dollars per seat, that doesn't appear anywhere on your P and L. Like that, that extra ninety dollars you were missing doesn't doesn't show up. So it's it's sort of out of sight, out of mind, and so people really don't think about it that way. I, I, it's it's a constant mystery for me. So I'm always open to other people's hypotheses of why this is the case. But you know, especially if there's only three ways to grow, it just always boggles my mind. So you know, I would say, like I said, if, if you're if you're not paying attention to it, you know. Put it in quarterly reviews at a minimum. Uh, annual reviews, uh, and when we think about changing, you know, there's many elements. I always talk about pricing and packaging, uh, and I actually think that packaging is in many more ways and more important than the price level. When we're talking about changing pricing and packaging, it's not that you're jacking around the price level every quarter there's many things that you could be doing within that domain that are not just changing the price level, right? We could have pricing localization. We could be modifying our, our, our offer bundles, configurations, creating new add-ons. Uh, you know, there's many options that we have that aren't just, all right, well, we were $10 a month this month and now we're $12 a month. And next month will be, uh, you know, 1195, whatever it is. Uh, You know, there's, there's many more levers within there. So uh, to think of it just unidimensionally, uh, puts uh, puts a, a box around it. I don't think it's very helpful. Let's talk about the packaging part
1: a little bit more because I, I also find this this aspect of it fascinating. And specifically around software products, do you like a particular packaging uh, approach more than another? We've mentioned good, better, best uh, a few times. Do you prefer that over uh, over other approaches? And and, and if so, why?
0: Yeah. So this is, this is an excellent topic because I think the concept of packaging is, is not well defined. And so, uh, if, if you might, I might just uh, lay out a couple of definitions because I think it could be helpful and make the conversation more productive. So first of all, I'll say when it comes to SaaS pricing, most executives think that what you charge will determine your success. In fact, who and how you charge determines your success. And this packaging aspect is part of, is, is a core part of this how you charge. And really, I think in terms of four different components. So there's the price metric. This is the unit of value you charge for. So this could be by the number of seats or the amount of data transferred or the amount of data stored or number of API transactions, um, amount of documents created, could be any number of things. Then there's the monetization or the price model. So this really defines how and when payments flow through the system. So we think of either subscription or pay-as-you-go, like a utility billing model, like my electricity company, I use certain amount of electricity. They send me a bill in arrears. Uh, or you know, as I mentioned before, Google or Facebook would have an auction uh, pricing model with, with their ad inventory, right? That's the pricing model. Then I think what you were referring to when you said packaging, which what I generally refer to as offer configurations or bundles. So this is how our sets of features group together to create offers. Uh, and generally, you know, the idea is we want to have offers for each customer segment that we're going after. And I tend to not use the term tier because a tier does imply this good, better, best. And there's definitely really good reasons to have good, better, best we could, uh, uh circle back on that conversation real quickly. I want to talk about this the last element. Um, but there are many other ways to do offer configurations or bundles besides just good, better, best. I think LinkedIn is one of the best examples I've seen where you know, they have a LinkedIn business premium, LinkedIn sales navigator, LinkedIn recruiter, LinkedIn job seeker. It's not that LinkedIn sales navigator is better than LinkedIn recruiter. It's different. It's for a different user persona, right? It's not that they, they expand and and one is, you know, necessarily better than the other. It's for different use cases, different buyers, different users. And so if we, if we talk about offer configurations, just in terms of calling it tiers, I think we can get locked into this mindset and there's different reasons you might want to do, you know, any of those. Uh, and then the final sort of part of packaging, I think of is in terms of price fences or uh what we... We run into this all the time in the B2C space. So, price fence could be usually in terms of either uh, customer identity, in terms of time, in terms of volume. So, if I go uh, get on a bus, I'm going to pay one fee. A senior citizen or a student is going to pay another fee, right? So, this would be identity type uh, change. Um, uh, In terms of time, um, this could be uh, my, if I call uh, a company on uh, January 1st, which is the first day of the first quarter of the year, it might be, I'm going to have a different, probably get a different price than if I call them at December 31st at 10 p.m. because that sales guy's got to meet his quota for the end of the fiscal year, uh, end of the fiscal quarter, right? Uh, so there might be a time a discount. You might see this in uh, going to the matinee showing of a cinema versus the evening showing when everyone wants to go, right? So we see that that price fence. Uh, or in terms of volume, in B2B, SaaS, I'll often see this You know, if I'm going to buy, uh, say, the price metric is seats. I'm going to buy Salesforce for example. I'm going to buy a different price. I'm going to pay a different price for the first seat I buy than the 1,000 seat I buy. Of course, I've got to buy you know, one, two, nine, ninety-nine. in order to buy that thousand seat, but I'm going to see a, a change in price, you know, volume. And so as we think about all of these elements of packaging, right, this is where these can really come together to help us Tell the value story, help our, our go to market teams really tell and sell the value story. If we do this well, it supports why is this set of features useful for you, Mr. Customer? Because you're in this situation context. Why does it scale in terms of this price metric is because you get more value. This is how, and, and we, we're able to use price to help accelerate and tell that value story that's aligned with our customer's experience. It can also help or, or hinder competitive comparison or differentiation, depending upon, you know, <laughs> which, which game we want to play. Sometimes that could be helpful. Sometimes it could be uh, depending on w- which direction. Um, and so, and ultimately, right, if we're able to uh, help customers self-select into the right offering for them, then, you know, that will shorten s- sales cycles time, increase sales velocity, reduce friction, right? Reduce less uh, amount of uh, sales uh, person time on the phone, uh, exchanging emails, right? Which reduces our customer acquisition cost, right? So, so packaging done well has a lot of really positive effects uh, as we go go to market. I'll stop there. Uh, <laughs> given what I said, uh, any any follow ups?
1: Oh, I think it was. I think it was awesome, and I think the the, the four components that you referenced make make total sense um, because it is it's it's a stack, right? It isn't. It isn't. You can't do, you know, you can't do an offer without understanding, you know, what you, what you're metrics are and what the business model is and, you know, and it's, you know, it's a stew that's got to work in concert together. Otherwise it's, you know, it's not going to taste very good and, and it's, it's not going to mm-hmm. serve the business very well.
0: Yeah. And, and with, with that, what I would uh, with that, what I would say is, right, going back to our, our previous conversation when we were talking about changing price, you know, once a quarter or once a year, right, you can now start to see what I'm talking about when it's like, all right, maybe I'm not changing the price level, but I, I have all these other areas that also need attention that, you know, on a quarterly basis or at least a minimum yearly basis probably need to get revisited. Cause again, if, Go back to the early parts of the conversation. It's a process. There's no way with this amount of complexity, we we search optimal, found the, the, the perfect peak in this landscape of you know 10 dimensions that I just la- laid out, right? Uh, so, so thinking in those uh, frame, right, really gives us a, 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 place, a way to play with this uh, in a way that doesn't feel so constrained, right? There's a lot of ways that these can work together. Um, and there's a lot of ways that if they're not thought through, can add friction to the process.
1: Yeah. And and I think, you know, as, as we begin to wrap up, maybe we can, we can start to summarize a little bit too, and, and maybe simplify, even though we've, we've, we've now, you know, opened up, you know, several lines of thought and conversation around it because the, the to do pricing well, I think as we've established is um, challenging. And, And so how can, how can company, Leaders and and it might be overall leadership. It might be product leadership. It might be market marketing leadership. It might be in the perfect world is probably all of them coming together to to figure it out and align around right the right approach to pricing for for the the, the company in a specific product. But where where do you, are there is there some low hanging fruit that they can start to look for and they can start to really make some some improvements in as they're beginning to understand the complexities of pricing and doing it well?
0: Yeah, so I think you know one of the areas that I see over and over again, and I'm starting to put together a uh, a bunch of thinking, and you'll see a future material for me hopefully in this uh, direction on overall. Like we're talking about, you know, pricing is a process. One of the biggest areas of, of concern when I deal with companies is there is no process, there is no governance, there is no owner. So you know, if hope is not a strategy, you see someone sees a pricing problem. You know, let's say you CMO or the CPO, see you know, CFO, anyone at the executive table, they see a problem. There's no process, there's no owner. That problem won't get addressed. You'll have an you'll have an angry discussion in the the Monday morning or Monday afternoon executive team meeting. Then everyone else will, go, everyone will leave the meeting and no nothing will happen because nobody actually owns that. It's a shared responsibility. It affects everyone. It affects the CFO because he's got to tell a value story to investors and make sure that the company doesn't run out of cash. It affects the CEO for similar reasons. It affects the CMO because they're trying to, you know, market the product effectively. Sales can't beat their quota, right? Customer success is trying to get customers to renew. So everyone has a vested interest, but nobody owns it and there's not a process. So what I'd say is really taking the time to designate an owner. Uh, much like you know, I, I spent a good chunk of my career in the product management world. Well, the product manager is the the walking, talking personification of the product in the company. That's the role of the product managers to be the person who understands the perspectives of all the stakeholders, including the customer, who's often not in the room. To balance all those, to make sure the company continues to move forward. And on um, pricing, we just don't have that. So it's always better to have the better angels of your nature say, "Okay, you know, Dan or." Ryan or, or whoever is going to own it maybe they you know oftentimes <laughs> you know it's like hey let's not get anything done let's have a meeting let's form a committee until pricing gets more mature and gets to the level of maturity of product management, which in many ways is still in its infancy, I think we need pricing committees um, because otherwise, you know, there's nothing worse than we only had a plan baked and then we brought in a key stakeholder at the, at the end of it and it vetoed the whole thing, right? So the more you can have a, a recurring, you know, it helps also with these ideas of a cadence in a process uh, uh, where it's not just left in the dark until there's a, a big crisis uh, that <laughs> forces an action, right? We can continually review it and have a, have a way to do it uh, and there 's not just a Hey, we're going to bend over and break all of our discounting practices because we have this one deal and if we if we do this then, you know, glory, uh, hallelujah to everyone, it'll be magic if if we just bend over backwards right? You have the better angels in nature decide, okay, no matter what deal comes in, this is what, you know, having a logo we're willing to give up for it. This is what we're not willing to give up for it. This is, you know, how we're willing to break or bend our pricing practices. This is not how we're willing to break bend or break our pricing practices. Having those discussions early uh, can help and, and can really aid the rest of these conversations, right? To, even to the point of, hey, we we need to figure out some research on this new product we're developing, and we don't know how to do that. Like, how are we how are we going to figure that out, right? Uh, versus just some poor product manager being like thinking like, oh, everyone expects me to do this and I never got trained this in my product management boot camp, or, you know, through osmosis because none of my product leaders got trained in how to do pricing either. You know, it becomes an open conversation where everyone can, you know, first we admit there's a problem, but then we can actually take action to solve it.
1: Right. Product management to a pricing guru. Um, that's uh, it's an easy transition, <laughs> uh, but that, that, that makes a lot of sense. Pricing process and pricing ownership. Right. And, and and I agree. I agree. In my experience, most companies um, don't have either um, certainly not process, certainly not practices. And then when it comes to pricing ownership, I would agree that it's ownership by committee or ownership by um just sort of absence right of uh, and a complete lack of of ownership and then it becomes and then it becomes mostly guesswork right where somebody then as part of the committee and this you know the executive group says well let's increase prices by you know 5 cents or by $2 or whatever and then everybody sort of looks around and goes uh, okay, sounds good. Right. And s- enough, enough h- heads nod affirmatively that, that they then, you know, adopt whatever was suggested, you know, with, with, with no, no sound, you know, judgment or, or backing. Um, yeah. So that uh, process and ownership makes a lot of sense.
0: Yeah. And, 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 you know, I know we're wrapping up, so I don't want to open up a whole bunch of canon words, but one I, one thing I will say is, you know, there's, Always, you know, some of those decisions where it's, hey, raise it $2, those tend to not be the, you know, end of life conversations. You know, one of the, for any pricing decision, we always want to understand what is the expected change in revenue? What's our expected change in costs and change of costs? is all the costs. If we're going to go research this to, to figure out better, pr- to measure uh, pricing, if we're going to go make the changes to change the, you know, the product, the licensing, the, the, the marketing page. Right. And, and so if, if, if the CEO feels comfortable of like, Hey, like I'm not worried about the risk, you know, Fire away, fire at the hip. It's those the bigger changes, right? That everyone sort of knows need to get made, but are getting. Uh, no one's deciding to make them. That those are uh, the areas where you know really having these uh, uh, a way to go about this could be helpful.
1: Yeah, totally. We we could go for we could go for another fifty two minutes. Um, and and you know we probably will at some point. Um, uh, because uh, this has been. Really interesting, fascinating. Uh, I appreciate it very much. If people want to get in touch with you, where's the best place uh, or places these days to do that?
0: Yeah, well, I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, really enjoyed the conversation as well. If folks want to get a hold of me, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn at Dan Balkowski. Uh, always happy to connect with folks there. Just If you do message me, uh, just let me know you heard me on the podcast so I can separate it from the rest of the LinkedIn spam. And folks want to... I try to debunk and... Uh, make clear this whole black magic world of pricing on my uh, website, on my blog. I try to blog uh, fairly regularly at producttranquility.com. So you check out my material there trying to help everyone make all new mistakes, but not the mistakes that I've made along the way. I, I, I like to, uh, you know, don't want to sit here and paint myself as this, this perfect uh, pricing person. I have made all of the possible mistakes. My goal is to help you, uh, you know, go make new ones. Don't make the same ones I did. That's boring. You go make new ones and then come back and tell me, uh, all the things you learn—that's how I get better. So,
1: I mean, new mistakes are a sign of of growth or or something, right?
0: Yeah, I must be growing a lot. I'm always making new <laughs> mistakes.
1: Oh, Dan, we might have to have side conversation about that. Then, Dan, I appreciate it.
0: Thank you, sir. I appreciate it so much. Thank you. Need some help with product? AWH is a digital product consulting, user experience, and software development firm here to help you create great digital products. Check out www.awh.net or follow us on Twitter at AWHnet to learn more.